This week, Windstream and Unity bid ask narrows. McClatchy files for Chapter 11. PG&E debtors file first proposed disclosure statement. More on all this, and as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Connor Skelding. And I'm Alex Brosman. Later this episode, Mark Fisher will discuss the earnings to date period, what's surprising, and what it tells us about what's to come. He'll single out a few companies and industries we'll be watching closely. It's Sunday, February 16th. Windstream and Unity Group have significantly narrowed their bid-ask spread, aligning on many key terms, with disagreement limited to non-financial terms, according to cleansing materials filed by Windstream last week. The filing also included the creditor's planned term sheet, contemplating a $2.075 billion rights offering and a Windstream business plan with annual revenue, OIBDAR, and free cash flow projections through 2026. The release came soon after parties described a, quote, very substantial narrowing of disagreements during a status hearing. Under both proposals, Unity would commit to fund up to $1.75 billion of growth capital improvements and receive an 8% starting cap rate on said improvements. It would also pay approximately $245 million to Windstream for certain fiber and IRU assets and make a cash settlement payment to Windstream of approximately $490 million over 20 quarterly installments. The proposals contemplate a public announcement of the agreement in principle in February, with all pending litigation stayed pending closing of the transactions. Moving to the planned term sheets, the debtors filed one from creditors and another earlier term sheet, which appears to be, but was not explicitly stated, to be from the debtors. The creditors' plan term sheet contemplates a $2.075 billion rights offering, funded approximately 40% by first lien debt holders and 60% by second lien debt holders. In addition, first lien debt holders would be either paid in full or receive the right to participate in the rights offering plus an amount of cash to pay their claims in full, while second lien debt holders would receive 6% of the new common stock along with their allocation of the rights offering. Unsecured note holders would receive a to-be-determined percentage of reorganized stock based on whether they accept or reject the plan as a class. The debtors later filed an earlier plan term sheet, which appears to be, but was not explicitly stated, to have been put together by them. It included a larger rights offering of $2.65 billion, a smaller exit term loan facility of $1.65 billion, and included a different claim figure for the second lien obligations. It also did not show any post-REORC equity distribution to secondly note holders. The McClatchy Company, a Sacramento-based media company and publisher of newspapers, including the Miami Herald, Kansas City Star, Sacramento Bee, Charlotte Observer, Raleigh News and Observer, and Fort Worth Star-Telegram, filed for Chapter 11 protection Thursday morning in the Bankruptcy Court for the Southern District of New York, along with roughly 50 affiliates. The debtors say that although they and the company's secured lenders, of which Chatham Asset Management is the largest, quote, have largely agreed to core elements of the restructuring transaction, the company commenced the Chapter 11 cases while McClatchy, quote, continues negotiations with the secured lenders and the PBGC. 
McClatchy was approaching the expiration of a 30-day grace period for deferred interest payments on its secured debt on February 14 and the expiration of a standstill agreement with the PBGC on February 18. The company has already launched solicitation of a proposed plan of reorganization that would eliminate approximately 55% of the debtor's total funded debt and that the board has authorized pursuit of a, quote, distress termination of its defined benefits pension plan, which would result in PBGC taking over the plan in exchange for 10 annual payments of $3.3 million plus 3% of pre-dilution reorganized equity. The PBGC has objected to aspects of the proposed first-day relief, and alleged fraudulent transfers may have occurred in connection with the Chatham transactions, pointing specifically to a 2018 refinancing in which Chatham exchanged unsecured notes for new secured debt. Under the debtor's proposed plan, approximately $218 million of the 9% first lien notes not owned by Chatham would be exchanged into $218 million of new 10% first lien notes secured by the same collateral and with the same 2026 maturity, while the second and third lien obligations would be converted into 97% of reorganized equity subject to dilution from a management incentive plan and certain warrants. Chatham, which has ownership across first, second, and third lien obligations, would receive $81 million of secured debt, including OID, subordinate to the new first lien notes on account of its $45 million first lien holding and a commitment to provide $30 million of new money exit financing. Last weekend, the PG&E debtors filed their first proposed disclosure statement in support of their January 31st amended plan. According to the DS, the plan is supported by the ad hoc noteholder group, the ad hoc subrogation group, quote, public entities in the areas in which the wildfires occurred, and certain, quote, major shareholders. The disclosure statement does not yet include financial projections, pardon me, a liquidation analysis, evaluation analysis, anticipated, quote, statements of support from the supporting groups, or the required fire victim claim plan treatment summary. But, it does clarify that stock of reorganized PG&E transferred to the Fire Victim Trust is expected to be sold for cash over time by the trust and, quote, no fire victim claim will be satisfied in stock. Judge Dennis Montali entered an amended order this week establishing the schedule for approval of the PG&E debtor's plan and disclosure statement. Also, Administrative Law Judge Peter V. Allen issued a revised scheduling order in the California Public Utilities Commission's plan approval proceeding. In addition, on Wednesday, PG&E filed a response objecting to U.S. District Judge William Alsop's proposed probation requirement that the company, quote, hire and train as part of its own workforce sufficient crews and equipment to inspect and to trim and remove all vegetation so as to come into compliance with the California Public Resources Code and PG&E's own wildfire mitigation plan. On the island of Puerto Rico, in a filing posted Sunday night to Emma, the PROMESA Oversight Board disclosed that it had entered into an amended plan support agreement with holders of approximately $8 billion in general obligation, or GO bonds, and Puerto Rico Public Buildings Authority, or PBA bonds. PSA builds upon the proposed September 2019 plan of adjustment, which had the support of holders of approximately $3 billion in bonds, and contemplates the filing of an amended joint plan of adjustment for the Commonwealth, ERS, and PBA Title III debtors that would consensually restructure approximately $35 billion of outstanding liabilities. The Oversight Board states in the filing that it intends to file an amended plan of adjustment on or before February 28. 
The amended deal calls for an average 30% haircut for bondholders, a $24 billion reduction in Puerto Rico's debt and other liabilities from $35 billion to $11 billion, and protecting existing government pension agreements. The filing also states that the PSA provides a framework for a plan of adjustment with $10.7 billion of new debt and $3.8 billion of cash consideration. The security structure of the new debt would be divided evenly between GO bonds and COFINA Jr. bonds. That 50-50 split differs from the previous PSA, which contemplated 100% GO bonds. Additionally, the filing states that through the mediation process, the Oversight Board says that it has reached a settlement on both the validity of the post-2011 GO bonds and on the priority of the GO bonds. Governor Wanda Vasquez said her administration does not support the new accord, which she said, quote, requires legislation to implement because it does not improve treatment of public pensioners relative to the previous plan. On Monday, various monoline insurers also put out a statement attacking the revised PSA as, quote, flawed, though they remain willing to negotiate. The court-appointed mediation team, noting the PSA, said Monday that, in light of the changed circumstances, the team now believes there is a path forward to possible emergence of the Commonwealth, PBA, and ERS from their respective Title III cases by the end of 2020. The mediation team identified two gating issues in connection with the ongoing revenue bond disputes, one related to whether the lift stay movements have allowed unsecured claims against the Commonwealth, and the other addressing whether the Oversight Board and or the Commonwealth are, quote, operating under a conflict of interest in acting for both the Commonwealth and HTA. In recommending a merits ruling on these issues, along with the threshold issues previously addressed by Judge Laura Taylor Swain, the mediation team explained that ruling on these additional issues prior to the disclosure statement hearing will facilitate its efforts to build further support for confirmation of a Commonwealth plan and the confirmation process itself. Other top stories last week were... Murray Metallurgical Coal files for bankruptcy. Murray Energy seeks authority to partly fund DIP. RSA envisions bid to restart Oak Grove. Sale of Maple Eagle to Panther Creek. American Commercial Lines prepackaged plan features rights offering, equitization of term loan. Faced with liquidation as only alternative, court approves Forever 21 sale to Spark Group, leaving estates with estimated $120 million administrative shortfall. And here to fill in for Jim Holloway on the week ahead is Karen Long. Welcome to the week of February 16th, also known as President's Day week or the week after Valentine's Day. Whether you'll be in the office planning what you're doing or monitoring things from the lines at Disney with the kids, we have you covered. The week actually starts on Monday. I guess no one told offshore rig operator TransOcean that it's a holiday, as the company reports fourth quarter results sometime that day. Typically, companies say before or after market close for earnings releases, but since the market won't open, I guess we'll be waiting and watching all day. On Tuesday, Sag TransOcean will hold a conference call to discuss results. The exchange offer for the 7 and 1 8 senior notes to 2020 of SESI LLC, Superior Energy Services' wholly owned subsidiary, expires today. Also on Tuesday, a couple of status conferences related to opioid litigation actions, one in Chicago and the other in New York State Court. We continue to keep an eye on opioid litigation actions across the country, 
But since a number of pharmaceutical manufacturers have pointed to the trial in the New York action, which is set to begin on March 20th, as a potential catalyst for a settlement, we're following this one particularly closely. On Wednesday, PG&E heads back to court for another hearing in its federal criminal proceeding before Judge William Alsup in San Francisco. The judge has asked PG&E to show cause why bonuses and incentives for supervisors and above shouldn't be based on achieving the wildfire mitigation plan and safety goals. We'll also be keeping an eye on a status conference in Dean Foods, an evidentiary hearing in Zohar, and a final dip financing hearing for High Ridge Brands. On Thursday, a number of large companies report earnings. We'll hear from Intelsat, Windstream, Community Health, and Cleveland Cliffs. Windstream last week provided updates on its negotiations with Unity as well as planned term sheets from the company and creditors. However, since Thursday's call will be pre-recorded, we're not expecting too much additional information. Likewise, just like us, Intelsat awaits the February 28th FCC meeting on the fate of Chairman Pai's proposal to pay satellite operators $9.7 billion in accelerated clearing fees. So not sure the company will be able to say more than let's wait and see. Community Health's cash tender offer for five and one-eighth senior secured notes due 2020 expires tonight. And in court, Fairway Group has a second day hearing. Now, in Texas, the home of our beloved Jim Holloway, the regular host of the segment, there's a hearing scheduled on the Sanchez Energy Unsecured Creditors Committee's motion for standing to pursue certain avoidance claims. The committee seeks to avoid liens on four oil and gas leases that it says are worth at least $540 million on a PV10 basis. The week ends the way it started with another offshore rig operator, Valaris, reporting results. The company recently reached an agreement with equity holder Luminous Management, resulting in Luminous partner Adam Weitzman being appointed to Valaris board and the company agreeing to engage financial advisor TorquePoint for advice on, quote, capital structure activities. Next, here's Mark with a look at the fourth quarter earnings. Thanks, guys. So right in the middle of fourth quarter earnings season, I thought it'd be a good time to catch up on uh, some names that uh, companies have reported, industries that are experiencing some volatility, and uh, for companies that you know have reported, maybe focus on um, a couple where uh, they reported some particularly surprising results. Uh, Going to look at uh, the energy uh, names t- today, uh, particularly the uh, natural gas producers up in the Northeast, and also Pixis is another name that uh, experienced some volatility after they had reported. So let's start with uh, energy producers. Uh, Like I said, uh, we'll focus on the Northeast natural gas producers if they've experienced a tremendous amount of volatility, not only uh, in recent weeks, but uh, probably for the better part of a few months now. The natural gas story has been well told. Gas prices have been below $2 for most of 2020. Uh, There was a brief period in the fourth quarter where prices improved to over $2.80. And 
as a result, some of the producers that have reported had seen some sequential improvement in prices, excluding derivatives. For instance, CNX Resources, a company we recently began covering at Reorg, in part due to the company's natural gas exposure, but also due to relationship with Murray Energy, uh, they reported their, na their realized natural gas prices, excluding derivatives, improved $0.10 cents sequentially from $2.04 in the third quarter to $2.14 in the fourth. Intero Resources, another name that we cover at Reorg, reported an 8% sequential improvement in all commodity prices from the third quarter uh, to the fourth quarter. However, and this is what I wanted to focus on uh, today, much of the gain was a result of natural gas liquid prices, which is what um, which is what drove the, uh, the the some of the better results. So in the third quarter, a number of companies in Appalachia began talking about the improvement in NGLs, which began improving as even as natural gas prices continue to fall. For instance, in October, we reported that Range Resources actually narrowed its guidance for full-year NGL realization relative to Mount Bellevue. Uh, when the company reported, then this is Range Resources, when they reported third quarter results, uh, they narrowed their guidance range to a 98 cent discount per barrel uh, for NGLs versus previous guidance of $1.20 to $1.30, and that's versus Mount Bellevue. So um, that's, you know, we're expecting some, uh, some improvement and um, the results are actually uh, decent uh, when you looked at uh, Intero in terms of the improvement they got in, uh, in commodity prices. And that's what I wanted to, to focus on. So, you know, when we switch back to them uh, in the fourth quarter, Intero, who are reported, uh, they said uh, NGL pricing was an area of strength. Uh, Intero CFO, Glenn Warren stated, quote, we saw a tremendous improvement with regard to our C3 and NGL pricing during the fourth quarter and Terra realized a pre-hedge C3 plus NGL price of $29.63 per barrel, $1.26 per barrel premium to Mount Bellevue. This premium was primarily driven by the recently widened international pricing arbitrage versus Mount Bellevue that we were able to capture through our committed propane and butane volumes on Mariner East 2. Looking forward, we are well positioned to continue realizing premium prices to Mount Bellevue due to our advantage position as the largest NGL exporter in the U.S. from our access to international markets through Marcus Hook in Pennsylvania. He continued, Antero is able to capture the international arbitrage versus Mount Bellevue through direct sales into international markets, fixed terminal rates, and local fractionation. This is in direct contrast to producers with exposure to the Gulf Coast who received Mount Bellevue, less pricing due to constrained export and storage capacity in the region and the local fractionization that would enable purity product sales. Looking ahead to the year 2020, uh, he continued, we expect our C3 and NGL price realizations to continue to be at a premium to Mount Bellevue, providing a truly differentiated NGL story for Antero. Uh, now, moving along, what we've seen recently, um, so the, uh, the, the CEO um, then added, uh, you know, added to this first uh, talking about um, some of the strength, uh, made a few extra comments um, uh, describing what, uh, what, what, what made the results better. Paul Rady, Antero's CEO, he said, well, I think that we can say um, is over the last number of months, let's say before coronavirus, that it was quite a healthy NGL market, that international arms, both the Northwest Europe and the Far East, were extremely strong. 
How do we explain that? Well, there was a congestion, I guess we could say, in the Bellevue and the export docks along the Gulf, and so it was hard to clear liquids in the Gulf. We have a competitive advantage in sailing time to Northwest Europe, so we were able to pick up a lot of the market there. But even beyond that, Far East was strong. They were just not getting enough liquids out of the Gulf to, due to the constraints and congestion there, so a very healthy fourth quarter market. Adding some color, uh, which Rady likes to do, he said it's helping to drain the bathtub, so to speak, of the Northeast. Adding, a year ago, we would have been 25 cents off Bellevue. Now we're 5 cents to 10 cents off. And as Mariner drains the bathtub further, we're seeing things there climbing towards the Bellevue price. However, now let's talk about what's going on recently. And this is perhaps an area um, of concern. Um, Rady said, now, of course, coronavirus has put a blanket on everything. So we've definitely slowed down the last few weeks in terms of price expectations, still moving our volumes, but the international markets are subdued. So as we look now to uh, you know to other natural gas um, producers, this is something that we're going to keep an eye on. You know, first going from an area of strength in the fourth quarter uh, to perhaps you know an area of uncertainty and and what's going on with um, with NGL prices here. Uh, you know, Rady of course blamed it on um, coronavirus, um, and you know we shall uh, we shall see. But companies like Gulfport, Southwestern, Range, we're all still waiting for them to report, and um, you know especially uh, you know on the NGL side, we'll. Uh, you know, we'll see what, uh, how that's been affecting, um, affecting them. So uh, let's move on to um, to another uh, company. Uh, let's just do look, look at uh, Pixis, which is a distributor and sourcer of tobacco leaves. Um, so that's uh, one of the areas, one of the companies that uh, surprised the market uh, since reporting results. The company's second lien debt has fallen from a price of about 65 to 48, and that's just over the last week. Uh, there was significant weakness in the company's core tobacco leaf product, uh, which Pixis largely blamed on timing. Uh, that business was actually growing in recent quarters. So we'll see when Pixis reports its next quarter if timing was truly a factor or something else. However, what I want to focus on is uh, the company's growth businesses, uh, since I think that's what has caused some of the biggest disappointment. In early 2018, uh, so you know, given a little background, Pixis announced a series of new investments that would, quote, expand its presence in higher margin, fast-growing categories. Uh, those businesses included e-liquid, industrial hemp and cannabis. Much of the cannabis business would be in Canada and within its FIGR segment. Fast forward in June 2019, speaking during the company's first, the company's fiscal 2019 fourth quarter earnings call, CFO Joel Thomas said he anticipates the new businesses becoming EBITDA positive during fiscal 20, which is actually right now since the company's fiscal year ends in March. However, after the company's first quarter call, management lowered its fiscal year 2020 guidance in part due to, quote, a contemplated third party cannabis supply arrangement that did not occur. So back to the issue of timing, management said in December that, quote, as we get into the back half of this year, and in particular the fourth quarter, we'll start to see hopefully a pretty significant ramp related to the new businesses, adding that. We believe that we will start to see revenue and profitability coming in from not only the expansion of FIGR East, but also from our hemp CBD business. And it's just a question of how much of that we will be able to fit into our fourth quarter. On December 5th, Pixis announced that it received approval to enter the Ontario market. This followed an amendment which allowed its facility to operate in an additional 210,000 square feet, resulting in an expected run rate of up to approximately 28,000 kilograms of product per year. 
I believe many thought because of that we'd see some improvement in the December quarter. However, the company actually experienced a sequential revenue decline for all its growth businesses in the December quarter versus the September quarter. And this could speak to the larger cannabis market, which certainly based on comments from Aurora and others has been weaker than expected. So on the uh, the quarter call, uh, Pixis's CEO, J. Peter Sickle, said on the call discussing pricing in terms of the existing products and really think about 1.0 there. So, uh, you know, these are the um, some of the earlier products. Our market share really varies from week to week. It really depends according to when one LP or another LP is essentially relieving themselves of some inventory that they have and they put a below cost product into the marketplace that there are some instant consumer uptake. We lose share that week, and then the following week we go back up again when the product is not available again on their again on the shelves. So I think uh, you know one concerning thing is on stability of the market and price integrity, and that's something that uh, has gotten people a little bit concerned. Uh, Pixis' entire capital structure matures in 2021, so it is certainly a company that uh, we will be continuing to watch uh, fairly closely. As I said, it's on uh, the, their fiscal year is the March quarter, so uh, next report from them uh, will be sometime later in the year when they report the full year fiscal uh, 2020 results. Uh, so that's it for me. Um, just some topics that I uh, want to discuss what we're seeing. Uh, of course, we're right in the middle of earnings season, so I'm sure there'll be a lot more uh, interesting topics to come. Thank you. And uh, back to uh, back to New York headquarters. Thanks, Mark. And thank you for tuning in to another Reorg Weekly Review. As always, you can find all Reorg podcasts on our site's media page, iTunes, and SoundCloud. This has been The Week in Reorg, and I'm Connor Skelding.